Yes, indeed, tonight is what it means to be young. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the second edition of Natsukashi. My name is Rob Rector. I'll be your host. And tonight we're going to be looking at the seminal Walter Hill underappreciated classic, Streets of Fire, from 1984, um, which was subtitled A Rock and Roll Fable. Going through my laundry list of past memories of this film, there are a multitude of them. Um, some films just come along right at that right time in your life, and they consume your thoughts, they affect your decisions. You know, like what would Indiana Jones do if his mom asked him to clean the closet? And they make you want to be that person on the screen. And Tom Cody, the lead character of Streets of Fire, was one of those heroes for me. Streets of Fire affected me on several levels. Musically, now granted the film's most popular tracks were rather weak, and a lot of them even resembled some overly embellished piece of pomposity that even Meatloaf would have scoffed at. But the soundtrack aside, the film's score was really what hit the mark. I felt hip among my elders to be able to proclaim my passion for blues guitar virtuoso Rye Cooter, who scored many of Walter Hill's films. Uh, they collaborated many times together, uh, in, especially in the, uh, in the 80s up until the early 90s. Visually, the film was amazing. It was astonishing. The rainy streets, the violent neon that glowed throughout the uh, throughout the picture. It was all very Blade Runner esque at the time, and and anything that had uh, anything to do with a Harrison Ford film at the time, uh, I was interested in. Narratively, uh, I know that I will probably get a lot of crap for this because the plot could be written on the back of a cocktail napkin. But in each scene, it was staged somewhat like a, a, a kind of like a panel of a cartoon, a panel of a comic. Uh, in fact, you could, it was just short of having, you know, the, the bubbles over the, uh, the thought bubbles over the uh, characters' heads when they spoke. And yet it was still that kind of... Uh, that kind of uh, structure that really made it interesting for for a, a young young man growing up at that time. Um, it affected me perversely. In the first half hour alone, I got a steady diet of cuss words, uh, boo swinging, chain smoking, boo swigging, chain smoking heroes, and I got a flash or two of nipplage from a rather homely stripper. But come on, let's face it: when you're in those formative years. That nipple could be placed on a woman's earlobe and still be interesting. All of this was safely under the guise of the PG-13 rating, which meant that uh, there was no parental supervision whatsoever. Now, that was all about to come crashing down that year, 1984. For that was the year when the MPAA decided to uh, place the PG-13 rating on, on several films and uh, therefore ruining many a movie-going experience for a young lad. So, But I was able to watch it repeatedly and without having to ask for an adult to supervise me. Uh, it affected me critically, and this is probably one of the most Im important uh, memories that I have of it in, in going through the nostalgic uh, nuances of the film. Um, I can remember using one of my spiral notebooks that I purchased for school, which, of course was typically blank inside, and I began my career as a film reviewer with this film. 
it was uh, this, it was a kind of booklet that had little colored tabs on the side, and on those colored tabs, I would alphabetize them and and categorize all the films that I had had seen up until that point. And obviously, Streets of Fire got four star rating, which was the highest. And uh, it was one of the things that that I recall very fondly and and really you know silently weep when I wish uh, you know. I, I could have held on to that book and and kind of reflected on it, especially in a film, in a um, uh, podcast such as this, such as Natsukashi, when we were kind of looking at our at our past memories of films. Um, physically, it affected me, and I have to uh, send out many thanks to Diane Lane for that wonderful trifecta of of film including uh, Streets of Fire, The Outsiders, and Rumblefish. Um, and, and I have to thank her, for between her and Phoebe Cates, for jump-starting my puberty. Um, emotionally, it affected me. I remember being crushed when I heard that uh, I Could Dream About You was actually uh, sung by Dan Hartman, a white guy. Uh, Stoney Jackson was the uh, actor who, who played the, the lead singer of the Shirelles, um, who who you know uh, lip synced the song in the in the picture, and uh, I remember even following Stoney Jackson's career after that. Uh, watching him, he was in a um, you know what was called a Miami Vice ripoff called The Insiders for one season, where he's teamed up with you know some some bland white guy, and they were both reporters for a magazine, and uh, you know, it was filled with, you know, the same kind of, you know, um, intrigue that, that marked uh, Miami Vice. And they even had a, a Phil Collins singing the uh, the theme song, I Got a Job to Do, when he was frontman for Genesis. Um, and it was right around the same time that there was the other knockoff of uh, the Cosby Show at the time, Charlie and Company, Flip Wilson's short-lived uh, series that actually starred a young Urkel. The eighth way that it affected me, I know this list is getting long, but bear with me, cinematically. Um, Walter Hill was a cinematic god to me at the time. Between this, 48 Hours, Brewster's Millions, which I'll admit to liking, Extreme Prejudice with Nick Nolte, and Trespass, which actually you know, was on the cusp of the 80s. It was, actually, I think it was released in 1992. Um, not to mention that The Warriors, his earlier film, was on constant rotation on HBO and my uh, my childhood friend Johnny Chawadi had uh, had parents that not only had a subscription to HBO, but were also uh, conveniently absent for uh, for many a uh, for many a day, an afternoon and evening, so that we could uh, we could sit down and watch uh, watch them clang the bottles together and ask the Warriors to come out and play. Um, and then the last way it affected me was heroically. I, I was convinced after watching this several hundred times, uh, Streets of Fire several hundred times, between this and Eddie and the Cruisers, that Michael Pere was destined to become a household name. Uh, it's only now that I realize that those two films would pretty much be the apex of, of his career. Um, but I, I followed every player in this movie onto their their subsequent projects, you know, from Rick Moranis to Willem Dafoe to even some of the side characters, the aforementioned Stoney Jackson, uh, Elizabeth Daly, um, even even Ed Begley Jr., um, who had a uh, had a brief stint in this uh, in this picture as well. 
Now, in viewing the film today, um, it really didn't come as much of a surprise to me that it held up as well as it did, partially because it was set in this kind of ageless alternate universe that was kind of filled with Ersatz 50s style, but it was retrofitted with 80s sensibilities and violence about it. Uh, Perret was Tom Cody, a delinquent, who is summoned back to his home, um, his hometown after his sister, played by uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg, who many may remember uh, as uh, one of the young girls in uh, Too Close for Comfort, Ted Knight, I'll pour a 40 ounce out for you, rest in peace. Um, anyway, Cody has to come back into town uh, after being beckoned by his sister uh, to help rescue a former flame of his by the name of Ellen Aim, who is played by Diane Lane, after she was abducted on stage by a gang of, of hoodlum bikers. Um, now, Ellen, at the time, was currently shacking up with an, a nebbish promoter of hers by the name of Billy Fish, who uh, was played by Rick Moranis. Uh, t together, both Billy and Tom team up with McCoy, who was played by Amy Madigan, uh, who many cited as being, you know, uh, kind of her her real breakthrough role, and actually the role was written for uh, a male lead, um, and uh, and she um, she she played a rather um, unfeminine uh, female. She was kind of a drifter and a former soldier, who uh, they were all going to rescue the the Chantreuse back from the clutches of the evil Raven Shaddock, who was played by Willem Dafoe. And uh, that's it, honestly. That's the uh, that's the film's plot. It's uh, it was as economical as its 90 minutes running time, um, but that brevity allowed viewers to focus on the many other aspects of the film, from the host of supporting actors. You know, there there's Bill Paxton. He's you know kind of taking a uh, test drive of his character of Chet, who he would play in Weird Science a year later. Um, oh, and over there was Robert Townsend, poor, poor Robert Townsend, um, who was uh, relegated to pretty much shuffling backstage as part of the, the Shirelles, the doo-wop group, um, and uh, he uh, he had not a word said in the entire picture, in fact, uh, uh, but, but uh, one of his songs was probably one of the most memorable of the soundtrack. It also allowed the viewer to focus on, you know, a lot of the set design, like I was talking about before, like the steamy, rain-slicked streets, um, you know, the overcast, clouded skies, which is actually, it was completely, it was filmed completely under a tarp, um, so it kind of kept the daylight out for the majority of the picture. As I watched it now, I, I was still amazed at how much they were able to get away with and slip into a PG-rated picture. There was drinking, there was cussing, there was smoking, there was, uh, you know, a slew of, of violence that took place, um, and gunplay, these these guns, these, you know, 
single action rifles were able to pretty much decimate uh, uh, motorcycles on impact. And the, the motorcycles are probably the most flammable, um, you know, pieces of machinery around. I mean, just one simple hit, and they would turn into these, you know, you know, mushroom clouds of, of uh, cinder. So, um, you know, it, it was it, it was all packed in, still under PG uh, under a PG rating. And, uh, you know, uh, like I said before, it even had that, you know, Sandra Bernhardt look-alike stripper who uh, who uh, showed off for goods. Um, and the cinematography uh, today is, is what really keeps the film from aging. Um, even the, the puddles of the films are vibrant. They kind of, you know, reflect that neon-soaked landscape or streetscape. Um, and, you know... One of the things that obviously looked a little bit dated, um, or, or sounded a little bit dated, I should say, was the pulpy dialogue. The dialogue seemed like it was straight out of a cut-rate Dashiell Hammett or Mickey Spillane novel. But you can you can bet that Sin City uh, owes owes this film a debt of gratitude. Um, the film is pretty much a textbook definition of style over substance. But when a film oozes this much style, it, it's easy to forgive. It's uh, its lack of, of nutritional value in other areas. So, in closing, the, the new memories that I have for this film, um, y- you know, the one thing, I don't care if he looks like a pissed-off Gordon's fisherman in a rubber clamming trousers, Willem Dafoe can still summon the legions of hell with that scream of his. And he creates some of the film's most iconic images with just a stare. He has this air horn in this one scene, and he blows it. And you know this this uh, army of of motorcycle men that look like they're right out of the uh, uh, the village people come come uh, you know rumbling down the street. And uh, it's it's still one of the you know one of the film's most uh, iconic images. I noticed too that the score is so much better than the soundtrack. Still. Um, you know the soundtrack itself sounds incredibly dated and very you know drum machiney and uh, you know Sheena Eastony and and I could have sworn that it was Bonnie Tyler singing for uh, the band Fire Inc. which was supposed to be Ellen Aim and the Attackers, um, but uh, but um, you know the soundtrack was was probably the most um, profitable part of this picture. It was made for 14 million dollars. Walter Hill. Uh, got that amount of cash uh, after the su- success of uh, 48 Hours, and uh, it only went on to gross five million dollars at the box office. Uh, I just wish the legendary guitarist Ry Cooter would make more films solely because I just like to say the words Ry Cooter. The acting ranged from wooden to spasmodic, uh, but there was kind of little gray area in between. Perret was uh, perfect in the role of this stoic bohunk and it required little more than, than being a 3D cartoon. But, man, was he badass. How badass was he? he? I'm glad you asked. He was so badass that in the opening scenes of the movie, when he appears, he's antagonized by a butterfly knife-wielding gang. Um, he grabs a hold of the leader and, and smacks him like like Mo getting a hold of Curly and Larry and the Three Stooges grabs the knife from him, hands it back to him, and uh, taunts him uh, to to try again. Um, so every character 
in, in Streets of Fire possesses that same kind of hyperbolic sense of self. For example, uh, Rick Moranis is not just a nerd. He is the nerd. He's complete with a mismatched wardrobe um, that, you know, when when his coat and his pants rub together, you can almost see sparks fly because they're so mismatched. Um, he's a nerd with a smart mouth. He's, you know, uh, yellow-bellied and, um, and, and sneering. And he has a look that's pretty much just shy of having a hit-here tattoo on his forehead. But again, this is part of the picture's, you know, kind of whole wonderful deranged uh, uh, point. I still consider myself a devotee and a fervent supporter of this film, even now that I have uh, that I view films with a more critical eye. Uh, its wisp of a story and its vacancies and dramatic deliveries are, are far eclipsed by the sheer visceral candy land uh, in which it places its audience. Sure, Streets of Fire wears some of its 80s heart on its sleeve, but it's just loopy enough and short enough to remember what it means to be.